Exodus 3, 1 through 17. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. Well, what we're doing this summer is we're looking at these famous Bible stories that have become popularized in the wider culture, that a lot of uh, children's Bibles are uh, known to reference these. These are what we're calling the Bible's greatest hits. You know, bops like um, David and Goliath, um, Noah and the Ark, and uh, uh, this morning, no, nobody got any, nobody cared what I said, Bob's. Um, it's fine. Um, um, or this morning, um, uh, the story of Moses and the burning bush, which is a strange, weird little story that has become popularized and it's, it's, uh, it's in pop culture. And really, what's at the heart of this story is this question is what does it look like to encounter God? How do you know? that you've actually encountered the living God and not just a, a, a figment of your imagination, not just an idea in your head. How could you know? 
And I think this uh, passage is actually really helpful because it helps us see that uh, when you encounter God, you'll experience three things. That encountering the true and living God, first, it's, uh, it's unexpected. Second, uh, it's unsettling. And third, it's unimaginable. And so those are the three big ideas I want to explore with you. Uh, encountering God, it's unexpected, it's, it's unsettling, and it's unimaginable. So first, uh, how is it uh, unexpected? Well, the, the story uh, begins, as you can see, with Moses out in the wilderness. And uh, in verse uh, 2 and 3 and 4, uh, God appears as this fire burning this bush, and it's not consuming the bush, and God, out of this fire, calls out to Moses. And, you know, you're, you're three or four verses into this thing already, and you're like, okay. See, this is why I don't like coming to church. You got plants that are talking, and you're, you're like, uh, and I know some of you may be in this situation where you're like, okay, I... I, uh, I haven't been to church in a while. I thought I'd give Redeemer a shot, and it's already kind of awkward in here, and I show up, and, and the, you know, p- plants are talking, and it's just strange, and it's weird. I can't get behind this stuff. Maybe y'all can believe this weird fairy tale business, but, you know, I'm a, as an educated person, <laughs> I can't believe this stuff, which is, you know, it's fair. I get it. It's strange and it's bizarre. In fact, it reminded me of, uh, there's a comedian, Jim Gaffigan, who kind of pokes fun at this story in one of his stand-up bits. I don't know if you remember this, if you've seen it, but he says, imagine being the person that Moses first told about this story. He goes up to somebody, hey, God just talked to me out of a burning bush. And Jim Gaffigan goes, sure he did. Moses, we think maybe you've been burning some bush. Like, uh, something's not right with you over there. But the point is, um, if if you're having this reaction to this story, I can't get behind this, this is strange, this is weird, I can't believe this, I want you to know you, you actually have more in common with Moses than you think you do. Because this wasn't normal for Moses either. This wasn't like a normal everyday thing where bushes are just on fire and God's talking out of stuff. In fact, if you look at verse uh, 3, Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Now that phrase, great sight there, the implication there could be uh, is that uh, this is inexplicable. In fact, there's, there's a, another English translation of this passage that, translate that translates that phrase, strange sight. This is not normal for him. You know, this is not, this is, this is just as weird, just as abnormal for him as it is for us. And on top of that, God shows up in a place where Moses least expected it. Moses' people, the Israelites, have been enslaved in Egypt up to this point for 400 years and was completely silent, which means God's people have, have you could imagine, stopped waiting around for God to do something, stopped waiting around for for God to respond, and yet here God shows up. And you think about God's, uh, or Moses' own life. Here's Moses' backstory. Even though he was uh, Israelite, uh, racially, ethnically, he grew up in the Egyptian aristocracy. He was, he was raised in the elite Egyptian private schools, raised by kind of the upper crust of, of Egypt. And because one day when he was an adult, he loses his temper, inadvertently kills somebody, and, and he runs off into the wilderness as a, as a fugitive, never re- to return back to that life. So that whole 
fancy, cushy, bougie life that he had is gone. No more Silver Spoon. No more Egyptian country clubs and access to the Egyptian pickleball courts. No more uh, Egyptian cotton sheets. No, no, he had no more access to any of that stuff. He's in the wilderness. In fact, this is when, we've, when we pick up this story in Exodus chapter 3, he's been in the wilderness for 40 years. He's an old man by this point. His whole life has taken this crazy detour. And he's in the wilderness. He's got nothing. He's watching somebody else's flock of sheep. And God shows up. And what I want you to see is um, this is actually not that unique. People don't tend to encounter God when everything's going great. People don't tend to encounter God after they get the job promotion, after they get into the school of their dreams, after they meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright. When everything's going great, that doesn't tend to be when God shows up. It tends to be when people are in the gutter, when people are in the wilderness, when, when everything that they conceived about their life has been turned upside down and everything feels over, everything feels ruined, that's precisely the moment. Which means if that's where you currently are, where you really feel like, okay, my life has taken a detour, this feels more like wilderness than it feels like country club. Maybe the reason why is because God is not, maybe that's not a sign that God is absent Maybe it's not a sign that God doesn't exist or that he doesn't care or that he's giving you the silent treatment. Maybe that's God setting the table, orchestrating your life in such a way where maybe you'd finally be open to encountering him for the first time, where you never would have conceived of doing that previously because it feels so bizarre, it feels so weird, it feels so foreign to you, but now when everything is bottomed out, now you finally have eyes. Maybe you're finally open to actually encountering him, experiencing him for yourself. I don't know. All I know is that encountering God tends to be unexpected. It's not formulaic. He shows up when you don't expect him to show up. That's the first thing. But encountering God, it's not just unexpected, it's, it's also unsettling. In fact, if you look at the story, you keep going, uh, Moses starts to approach this fiery bush thing. And as he approaches it, in verse 5, God calls out and says, don't come any closer. You're approaching pure holiness. It's like, it's like Moses is just wandering into a nuclear power reactor, and God grabs him by the back of the shirt and says, you for real do not want to take another step. And look at how Moses reacts. Once he realizes who he is in the presence of, verse 6, it says that Moses hides his face, and he is terrified. Why would Moses cower in fear before this, you know, brush fire. Because Moses realizes he is in the presence of absolute holiness. He's in the, he's in the presence of God himself, and that is, is deeply unsettling, deeply disturbing. And you think about it, okay, why, why the fire? Why, why is the bush on fire? In fact, if you read through the Bible, God's always showing up as fire, always showing up as fire. In fact, if you, if you rewind the tape a little bit, God appears to Abraham. You know, they had, had all these animals cut in half, and he appears between them as this fireball of sorts. When the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness, God shows up as this pillar of fire. When they get to Mount Sinai, fire. 
Mount Carmel, you have Elijah and the prophets, fire. Why, why has God always manifested himself as fire? And I think here's partly why. Uh, because fire is this untamable force. This is why adults, we, we know, we tell our children, you know, don't play with matches. Don't play with fire. You, you, have, you have to respect this thing. It is way beyond you. It's way more powerful than you. It can burn you. It can harm you. It can destroy everything around you. In, in fact, there's a, uh, there's a quote that I put it, uh, at the beginning of your bulletin. It's by one commentator, Philip Ryken. He says this. He says, you can mold clay, you can break rocks, you can cut wood, but fire, you can't manipulate fire. It molds you. And that's the point. The God of the Bible is like fire, so powerful, so much more beyond us that, that we adjust to him. We can't customize fire. We can't customize God. We adjust to him. We don't expect him to adjust to us. In the same way, if you're out in a field and there's this raging forest fire moving towards you, you don't plant your feet and say, I'm not budging, and I'm going to expect the fire to adjust to me and to accommodate me. No, we recognize we're out of our league here. We have to adjust to it, which means we start running. But I want you to see that's not how most people relate to God. Most people relate to God by saying, okay, I'm going to start with me, and I've got my preconceived beliefs about the world, and I have my values, and I, and I, have, uh, I, ha I have things in me that I'm not budging on. And I'm going to come to God, and I'm going to expect him to fit into my framework, into my system, into my understanding of the world. And so we say things like, I can't believe in a God that is fill in the blank. I can't believe in a God that has judgment. I can't believe in a God that is wrathful or angry. I can't believe in a God that thinks this about this particular subject or says this about this particular social issue or, or, or feels this way about this particular thing. And so what we're doing is we're, we're, we're saying, you, God, are going to fit into my framework. And of course, the, all of those are fair concerns, and all of us have our own values, and we have our own beliefs, and all of that's for sure. But I want, you to pay I want you to pay attention to the dynamic that if God, if God is real, if God is God, if God, if God really exists and he is this ultimate uh, infinitely holy, infinitely powerful being who spoke existence into existence, if he spoke reality into being, if he spoke the galaxies into existence with, his, with a word, if that is who God is, this is not the kind of being that you approach and demand conform to your understanding of the world. This, this is a God that you approach and you say, I will conform to your values and to your understanding of the world because you're above me, you're beyond me. Which shows you, um, and, and I'll say this, so if you've never been unsettled by God, if you've never been offended by God, if he's never said something or done something that just rubs you the wrong way, I don't know if you've actually interacted with the God of the Bible yet. I don't know if you've actually had an encounter with the, the true and the one living God. You may be um, familiar with the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson, our great great, great, whatever, forefather, American forefather. Uh, he um, would read the Bible and would come across passages that he didn't like, things that offended his 
uh, sophisticated sensibilities. And so he literally took a pair of scissors and would cut them out. So he reads the story about Jesus turning water into wine. That's stupid. Cut it out, throw it away. Uh, Jesus raising from the dead. That didn't happen. Cut it out, throw it away. Jesus ascending into heaven. Eye roll, cut it out. So he, he cuts out all the parts of the Bible that he doesn't like which I don't really know how that worked logistically because paper, I'm assuming, was printed on both sides. And if you're cutting out one story, I don't know how it affects the story in the back. But regardless of how he did it, he did it. In fact, you can, you can buy a, a uh, Jefferson Bible. I was looking this morning or on Amazon. You can buy the version of what he stripped down to what he liked. But, but think about that. Think about what he's doing. We, 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 we like that idea. I want a God that I can customize to my preferences and to my desires and to my values. And as convenient and as comfortable as that feels, at the same time, you have to realize, I'm just making up a God in my own image. I'm just, I'm sculpting and curating a God to just fit my particular needs. That's not, it's not real. I made it up. In fact, you know you made it up. The reality is, is that you and I, we, we may not be taking scissors to the Bible, but in our own way, when we refuse to let God offend us, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're curating our own God. So let's just, let's just press this and see. If the God of the Bible, or if your God, we'll put it this way, if your God uh, perfectly syncs up with your conservative political values or agrees with you on all of the conservative social issues of the day, and every time you read the Bible, it just perfectly fits and harmonizes with how you understand the world. And at no point does it cross you. My guess is you're doing what Thomas Jefferson did. You're making a God in your own image. And the flip side is also true. If, uh, if your God perfectly endorses all of the same issues that happen to fall on the modern liberal side of things, all the liberal political agendas, all the, all the liberal uh, so social uh, issues of the day. If, if God happens to endorse everything that you believe as an American in 2023, uh, you may have created God in your own image. In, in fact, if, if you have a God that is safe and is domesticated and curated and, and never crosses you, never offends you. Uh, you don't have a god. You have an avatar. You, you, you have a pet that you've, you've created, but that's not the real god, which, which actually shows you that the proof is in the pudding. If you have been offended, if you are offended, that is proof of the fact that you're actually interacting with the real god. He's crossing you because if God is God, he's, he's not conservative. He's not liberal. He's over and above all of our different political tribes and all of our different thought systems. He's over and above it, which means at different points, he's going to offend all of us. And so if you've never been offended, you've never been crossed, you've never been unsettled, you may not have actually encountered or done business with the true God yet. And so that's the question. Have you been unsettled? Have you ever... Have you ever come across something in the Bible where you're like, I don't like that. That grates against my understanding of the world. If that's you, that's awesome because that means that you're being honest and you're actually doing business with the real God at that point because 
because just like Moses experienced, encountering God is unsettling. It's disturbing. So uh, what else? Encountering God is uh, it's unexpected, it's unsettling, but there's more. One more thing, quickly. Encountering God is also unimaginable. If you noticed in this whole interaction between Moses and the Lord, which I'm not, we're not going to go into all the details here because there's a lot. We'll just do the, the flyover. But if you notice three different times, God describes himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see that in verse 6? You see that in verse 15? You see that in verse 16? Three different times he says, I'm their God. These are my people. Now, what do we know about these three dudes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Abraham uh, used to be an idol worshiper. In fact, if you read his story, on two different occasions, he offers up his wife to foreign kings that were threatening his life. He offers up his wife as like a sexual payment to save his own skin. Total coward, throws his own wife under the bus, not once, twice. Awesome stand-up dude. Uh, What about Isaac? What do we know about Isaac? Isaac was uh, a terrible parent. He favored one of his children over the other, and so his whole family unraveled and was the most dysfunctional. He was the head of the most dysfunctional family ever. It's like the the biblical version of, like, the Bluth family from uh, Arrested Development, just a total train wreck. And what do we know about Jacob? Jacob was a con artist, He was a liar. He was a thief. He was constantly cheating people, constantly uh, tricking people, getting stuff out of him. He'd he'd be an amazing character on Breaking Bad or, you know, something like that. So here's the question. You've got these three guys who are just total disasters, total messes, total screw-ups, and God says, these are my people. This is who I'm with. The modern-day translation would be for God to say, I'm the God of porn addicts. I'm the God of adulterers. I'm the God of liars. I'm the God of cheats. I'm the God of workaholics. I'm the God of failures. Now you hear that and you think, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. How can God be this holy, fiery, scary, intimidating force and at the same time identify himself with train wrecks, really bad, screwed up people? Here's how. Because the story of the fire continues. After this particular incident, and uh, God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery, which is the story we're going to look at next week, uh, they they go through the wilderness, and they get to Mount Sinai, and, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he gives them the law. And this is God's way of saying, here is my constitution for your new society. Here's how I want your people to be structured. Here's all these laws. And if you read through all these laws, which is a lot of fun, in Leviticus chapter 4, you get to uh, God's descriptions, God's instructions for what the priests are to do with a sin offering. And so here's the deal. They said, okay, if you ever find yourself offended by God because you're out of sync with his law and his way of structuring society, if you find yourself guilty, if you find yourself you've, you've messed up, you've crossed the line, you've done something wrong, here's what you do. You bring a bowl to the priest at the tent of meeting, which is like an old version of the temple. 
And what the priest would do was put their hands on the animal as a way of signifying, okay, your failure, your law-breaking is now being transferred to the animal. And then the priest would cut its throat, kill the animal, chop up the carcass into bits, and then put bits on the altar and light a fire underneath it, and the fire would consume the animal whole, which is visceral and graphic and horrific and, and you but, but you what would that have what that what would that have experience been like for the person who brought the animal in and they show up and they say okay I am guilty I've broken the law I've screwed up I'm out of sync with God and now here's this incident that just happened and I am still intact I'm still here not a not a hair on my head has been harmed and yet God just went scorched earth on this animal in front of me. How, how in the world am I okay in this scenario? Here's how. Because God's gracious enough to allow something else to receive the fire in your place. The only way that you and I survive this scenario is if God's gracious enough to provide a substitute. And he does. The fire consumes the substitute, not the guilty person. And of course, this is all just a movie trailer of what's to come when God sends a, a, a true Lamb of God, Jesus himself. And so what is Jesus doing when he's on the cross, writhing in agony and screaming and crying out? What's he experiencing? He's experiencing the fire of God's justice coming down on him. He's getting scorched earthed so that you and I don't get a, a hair of our he, uh, head getting singed at all. We don't experience anything because Jesus absorbs it all. It reminds me of this um, uh, story that I, I heard about that Paul Zoll tells in one of his books. Paul Zoll, which is an amazing name, uh, was a famous Episcopalian, is a famous Episcopalian um, priest, author. And in one of his books, he tells the story about two uh, guys that are duck hunting out in southeast Georgia. And the story is that they're out there and they're in this field and they can see on the horizon this uh, smoke off in the distance. And they don't really think anything of it, but uh, eventually they start hearing the sound of crackling, and they realize, oh my word, there is a wild brush fire that is coming upon us rapidly. And the wind is so fast, and it's coming so fast, we're not going to be able to outrun this thing back to our cars. And so they, they put down their backpacks, and they're rummaging through it, and they find a pack of matches, because people used to carry around matches. And so they took these matches, and they lit it, and they lit the ground right underneath them. And it started to burn, and it created this small circle around them that was just totally blackened, just totally burnt, so that by the time this fire comes, they stand in the middle of this circle, cover their faces with their handkerchiefs, embrace themselves as this fire rushes upon them and then passes over them, and they're safe. And they weren't hurt at all because fire can't pass over where it's already passed over. If a fire is coming, the safest place to stand is in the spot where the fire has already scorched. When you and I encounter the holy fire of God, the safest place for us to stand is where the fire has already scorched, and that's in Jesus. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, when we stand in him, we, 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 we unite ourselves to him by faith, 
you will not be burned by the fire. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fire cannot pass over where it's already passed over. Why does God do this? So that he can identify with you. The only reason why God can look at train wrecks like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and train wrecks like me and train wrecks like you is because somebody else received the, 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 the brunt of his fire, and it was Jesus. So here's what this means. This means that if you are in Christ, you can wake up in the morning and you can feel like a complete failure, and you can say, okay, I haven't done enough. I, I continue to struggle with this thing that I was hoping I was going to be passed by now. Uh, I, keep, I keep screwing up in this one area. I feel like a total mess. And simultaneously, you can know that you are loved because of where you're standing. Because you look at what Jesus has done for you and you know, okay, because of what Jesus did, God looks at people like me and says, I am the God of failures and you are my people. You can be in Christ and you can wake up and just feel uh, utter despair, that sense of hopelessness, that sense of you don't even want to get out of bed. What's the point? And you, you, can, you can look at where you're standing and you can know that you are loved. You can know that God is with you. You can know that ultimately it's going to be okay because God has said, I, I am the God of the discouraged. I'm the God of those who are in despair. I'm the God of those who doubt. That's who God is. And so the question I want to leave you with is this. Have you encountered this God? Have you encountered a God that, that shows up in ways that is startling and surprising and unexpected? Have you encountered a God that at different points and in different places crosses you, confronts you, offends you, upsets you? And have you encountered this God that, that astounds you with his love and his grace for you, that he was literally willing to destroy himself to identify with people like you and like people like me? The way that you encounter this God, ultimately, is to look at Jesus, who lived and died and was raised for you. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, it is unimaginable uh, that you are this far above us, this far beyond us, and yet condescended this low to be near to us, that you would give up and sacrifice this much to identify with us. Father, I pray that you would unsettle us, that as we relate to you so often as if you are uh, just an extension of our own desires, an extension, just a figment of our imagination, I pray that you would show yourself to be real and show yourself to be transcendent above us and yet show yourself to be infinitely more gracious and merciful and loving than we could have ever imagined. Only you can reveal yourself to us in this way, and so we ask you to do so. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.